I want to welcome you. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And um, just, I'm going to go ahead and be upfront. I'm probably going to break some rule this morning because I'm not going to preach uh, one passage. I'm going to preach two. And uh, here's why. Uh, of all the gospel writers, Luke is probably my personal favorite. And some of it just has to do with the way he writes. Uh, he's a medical doctor, and so I think he's paying attention to some details that I think other gospel writers omit. But one of the things that I really love about the opening of Luke's gospel is the way that he sort of braids or weds the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph together. And so what he's doing is he'll tell you something about Zechariah and the angel Gabriel who goes to visit him and tells them that, hey, you and your wife in your old age, you will have a kid. Then he leaves there and then he goes to uh, Mary and the same angel Gabriel goes to Mary and tells Mary that, hey, you're going to have a kid. And then Mary leaves and goes to visit Elizabeth. And then John the Baptist sort of leaps in the womb when Mary walks in the door. And then Mary goes back and starts singing praises about her son. And then the, the light is sort of focused back on Zechariah and John the Baptist, who was born. And after Zechariah is born, he turns attention back to Jesus, who was born. And then Jesus is born and he is circumcised. He is worshiped. He grows up. And then it switches back to John the Baptist, who is now an adult, who's in the wilderness preaching and pre preaching baptism and being re and, and repenting. And then Jesus comes to get baptized by John the Baptist and then John the Baptist starts to recede to the background, just like he said that I must increase and Jesus must, I mean, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Well, Luke shows you that by bouncing between John the Baptist and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus. And then Jesus comes to the forefront because the gospel really is about Jesus. And John the Baptist starts to recede. So Luke does this in a way that no other gospel writer does. And so what I want to do this morning is look at the first narrative about the announcement when Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she's going to have a son. I want to skip out those two chunks where they kind of go back and forth to John the Baptist and Mary and Zechariah. And then I want to actually look at the fulfillment passage when Jesus is actually born. Because when you put these two passages together, I think something beautiful starts to emerge. So Luke chapter one, we'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month, and so that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was then sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, who was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He is the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And if you look over at chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we turn our attention to your word. We have worshiped you through reading scripture. We have worshiped you through praying. We have worshiped you through giving. We have worshiped you through hearing the voices of the saints sing scripture back to us. And now we turn and we continue to worship through the reading and preaching of your word. Would you be with your servant? Would you be with your people? Would you exalt yourself? Would you exalt your son? Would you conform us to the image of our maker for the glory of God and the good of Christ, we pray. Amen. I started to give Jimmy a, a few pictures to show, but I figured I could probably talk through it and it might suffice for the moment. But uh, so, uh, some of you are parents. You've seen your kids when they do their, their drawings, especially when they're three or four, and it's a stick figure, and it might say, I love you, mom, or I love you, dad. And the love is kind of spelled L-U-V and not L-O-V-E yet because they're sounding things out phonetically, and they hadn't quite differentiated that. And there's no proportion to sort of what they're drawing. The head might be this big, and the body might be that big. And, and Suppose that there was a, a famous art show and, and the people who were putting on the art show wanted serious people to submit artwork. If your kid submitted that piece of art, it, it just would not win, right? It just, it just wouldn't win. First of all, you, it, it, there's, there's incorrect spelling on the drawing, right? But then the, things like shading and and texture and, and proportion, those things that we evaluate good art with, that they're just breaking all of those rules. And so it, there is no way that someone who is grading this stuff would, would call this beautiful. Or suppose that I, I were to show you an image of a woman and her children and her husband, they're at a, at a, at a, uh, a football game and it's a preseason game. And so there's not a lot of people there and, and it, it looks really empty. And the photo is, is off-centered, right? The, the lighting is not good. It's grainy. And suppose someone were to, to have a photography contest and, and you were to submit this amateur photo that's off-centered with bad lighting, it's grainy. There's no way that that photo would win. Suppose that someone was doing some, um, some, some mill work or some carpentry and there was a contest on, on 
doing really good carpentry. And suppose this person gave you a cross that should be a cross, but you can't, it doesn't really look like a cross and it's not proportioned and they forgot to sand it well, they stained it. It's no way it would win a carpentry contest, right? Because it doesn't fit the laws of carpentry, good carpentry. Now, here's the thing. Now, what if I told you, right, that that first piece of artwork with the, that said, Dad, I love you, was drawn by a son with autism who's 15 years old and his dad is in the military and hasn't been home in six months. And that's the photo that his dad looks at every night. That's beautiful, right? You will be a cold person to say that that's not beautiful. Suppose that, that that photo that you saw with this woman and her family at a preseason game, at a preseason game with no one else in the stands, and it's not even a good game. Suppose I told you that, hey, un underneath that, that hat, that, that's a wig, and, and she has cancer. And she's not going to be alive in five months to go to a real game. That one of the things that she wanted to do before she leaves this earth is to go to a ball game with her family and she doesn't care who's there. And it doesn't matter if the photo is off center. It doesn't matter that it, it, it's grainy. There's beauty in the photo, right? What if I told you that this, this piece of carpentry that this, that this man has done, what if I told you he's been addicted to substance abuse for, for 20 years and he's finally clean. He's been clean for a year and he, he's out, he's, he's living in a shelter. He hasn't quite sort of made it yet. And he is trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior. And rather than be on the corner down there asking you for money, he's actually trying to work. You see, before the addiction, he used to have steady hands. And before the addiction, before he hit rock bottom, he used to could run a, a table saw. He used to could do these things well. And here it is now. He's 20 years later. He's trying to hone in on these skills that he used to have. You would have to say that despite how ugly that thing is, there's some beauty in it. Here's what we learn about beauty. It's not just what you see with the eyes that makes something beautiful. That oftentimes the beauty is in the details. The beauty is in the truth behind sort of what you see. And if you judge what you see just by human intellect, just by rules of grammar, just by rules of art, just by what makes sense to us, then you'll miss beauty. You'll miss it. But if you know the details, if you know the story behind what you see, you will see beauty when no one else sees it. That's helpful for us to think about Advent. When the world looks at us celebrating this little baby who's born in a manger, I mean, that's a sentimental story, but it kind of loses its beauty. I mean, there were thousands of babies born on Jesus' day, right? Thousands of babies were born to poor family. So what is it about this child? What is it about this child that we think is beautiful? What is it? And I'm telling you, the attention is in the details. The beauty comes when you understand the details behind the nativity scene. If you don't know the details, you're not going to be moved by something beautiful. But when you feel that in, 
beauty just emerges. The case that I want to sort of make to us this morning, Jesus is the most beautiful gift to the world. He's the most beautiful person to ever walk this earth. More beautiful than your spouses, more beautiful than your money, more beautiful than your intellect, more beautiful than your children, more beautiful than you, more beautiful than Hollywood, right? The case that the scriptures will make the coming of Jesus is beautiful. Now, what I want to do is just sort of show you why I think and why I think this, what the scripture is sort of wanting us to get out of the text. And the first thing I, th I think is here is that the divinity of Christ is beautiful because it shows us that only God can save you. The divinity of Christ is beautiful because it shows you and us that only God can save now, it's important to remember that, that where the Bible begins as it relates to the person of Jesus. And I think he loses his beauty if we start to emphasize the wrong things in Luke chapter one, right? So I think there's an, a, a temptation uh, to overemphasize the role of Mary, right? Mary's found favor, Mary's a virgin, Mary is an upright person. I mean, I think it's easy to shine the spotlight on Mary, and I think if we were to do that, then we're going to necessarily undermine the beauty of Jesus. I think there's also a mistake that we can make, and, and Donald McLeod, who's written a really good book on the person of, of Jesus, we had to read it for some systematic theology classes in seminaries so long ago, but I pulled it off the shelf again this week. He says we can actually overemphasize the humanity of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 1, and that's been done, that we underemphasize his divinity. Now, I want, I want to jog your memory, right? And, and I want you to think about how we tend to think about Jesus, and may, maybe not you, but how the world might think about Jesus. They might say, okay, he's a good man. Oh, and he's also God, right? Their emphasis might be on his humanity. And I want us to sort of step back from that and say, well, wait a minute. What does the Bible start with Jesus's identity? And so here's what John writes about Jesus. At the beginning of, of, his, of, his, of, his, of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see how eloquent and beautiful that sounds? But what did John say about the Word, who is Jesus? He says he was with God in the beginning that all things were created by him. And guess what he did after all of that? He took on flesh and dwelt among us. You see what John emphasizes first, not that he's a man who became God. This is God who became man. Think about the, the book of Hebrews, right? If you want to see the humanity of Jesus, and if you want to see all the ways in which Jesus identifies with our weakness, Go read the book of Hebrews. It says, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since children have flesh and blood, he too partook of the same things. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he suffered unto death and tasted death for everyone. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, he suffered. Hebrews chapter 4, 15, he, he was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. So if you want to know what's important to the author of Hebrews, it is his humanity. It is the fact that he can relate. We do have a high priest, a savior, who knows what it's like to be a human and to walk the earth. But... Do you want to know how it starts the book of Hebrews? It does not start the book of Hebrews with shining our attention onto the humanity of Christ. Notice how Hebrews starts long ago in many times and in many ways. God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is much more superior to angels. To which angel did he ever say, you are my son? To which angel did he ever say, I will be to him a father, and to me he will be a son? To which, and to which angel did he ever, to Jesus, did he ever say, go worship angels? He says, no, let the angels worship my son. You see what's happening in John and in Hebrews, the starting point for biblical Christology, how we view the person and work of Jesus. It is not just that he was a good man. The scriptures say that he is God who became man. And that's what you see in our text this morning. You see it in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. So first thing right there, notice where Gabriel comes from. He doesn't come from this world. He was sent from the presence of God, which is the same thing he told Zechariah when, Zech when he scared Zechariah, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent by God to speak to you. In other words, you're starting to realize that what's happening in these conversations, this is not just man-to-man -man talk. This is someone from the outside sit dispatching and sending their angels who are their ministering spirits down to the earth to deliver some good news. This this already reeks of, wait a minute, you're not from this world. That's why when Zechariah sees him, he's scared. That's why when Mary sees him, they're scared. You don't look like a mortal. Like, who are you? What are you? Where are you coming from? It's an invasion of God into time and space. And so this angel, he goes to the first couple in Luke 1, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and they're old and they're married and they've been trying to have a kid and they couldn't. But he comes to this second child and they're young and they're unmarried. And the last thing they want to be walking around with is you're engaged, but your stomach is sticking out. Right. They know what that's going to bring the shame in his day and age. She doesn't want a child. And Joseph doesn't want a child. As a matter of fact, when he finds out she's pregnant, he wants to divorce her because he thinks that she has been immoral. So you see the extremes? He goes to this old couple who wants a child, you're going to have a kid. Then he goes to the couple who doesn't want a child, says, you're going to have a kid too, right? And Mary is confused. How will this be? She's a virgin. And her intent is to stay one until she marries her husband. And so she is dumbfounded. And so the angel tells her, you will have a son, you will conceive, you will have a son, and you will call him Jesus. 
You know how hard that is to just guarantee that? To guarantee conception? You, you tell that to a family who's struggling to, to conceive. You know it, it, how hard it is to guarantee the sex of a child? Tell that to one of my homeboys who got four girls, right? <laughs> but that's not the greatest miracle, just sort of telling them what's going to happen. The greatest miracle is that she's not been with a man. So how in the world will I conceive? It doesn't make sense. And the angel Gabriel tells her, I'll tell you how it will happen. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, it's going to be an outside job. It's going to be not from you and Joseph, not from you and any other man on this earth. The way that you will conceive will be from the help and power and might of God, from the outside down. And who will we call him? We will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin and he will be the son of God because he will be holy. You start to see that what, what, what Luke is emphasizing, this is not just a mortal child. That the coming of Jesus is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you lay Matthew on top of this, you will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. So where does salvation come from? It comes only and is found only in the work of Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Sent from God, the second person of the Trinity. And so what they're saying is the only way for a man or a woman to be saved, it is through God, by God's initiative, God's doing. And that's where his divinity is beautiful. Because he's not of this world, not born of an earthly father. God is descending, and if God is descending, it means that prior to the incarnation, the second of person of the Trinity existed in an ascendant posture. It means that the beginning of Jesus' life was not at the in Mary's womb. That was not the beginning. Contrary to what I think we think at times, that, that Jesus' beginning began when he was conceived in the Virgin Mary, and that is not the case. What scripture is saying is that all things were created by him and for him and through him. And I know that's hard, right? That interaction between the human and the divine. On the one hand, you, you hear Jesus telling Nathaniel, hey, I saw you when Philip came to get you and you were sitting under the fig tree. And he, his mind is just like blown. Like, how did you see me? That when, when Peter has been fishing all night long trying to catch fish and they catch nothing and Jesus kind of rolls up on them, says, hey, brother, go cast it out over there just a little bit to the right. And then they get fish that they can't contain. Right. Like, how, how does he know that? How does he know to do that when the winds and the waves are about to overtake them? And he says, calm down. That is creation listening to its creator. When he tells Lazarus, Lazarus, I'm not even going to come in here and unwrap you. Hey, you just get out. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. I hold your life and by, by my words and my power. And then you hear Jesus say things like, wait a minute. Well, master, when, when will the world end? Well, that hadn't been revealed to me. Only my father knows that. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I thought you were God. 
You can't have it both ways, right? You get tired and you cry, but you're still God. And that's the mystery. That is the mystery. Somehow in Jesus' descending and coming to the earth and taking on humanity, you know what he never, ever, ever relinquished? His divinity. He was still God. Still God the entire time. And I kind of I like that, right? Because if he's just a souped up human, man, I have no security. Even like, have you ever been around like holy, godly people that you really admire? And the more you get to know them, they start to look less holy. You see their impatience, right? You start to see all kind of things about them that you thought, oh, my word, man, they are holy and exalted. But the more you are around them, you're like, oh, man, you're just like me, brother. You, we're just alike. Here's the thing about Jesus. He's holy and pure, eternal, divine, beautiful, sinless. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past this. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying all of our rationalism. If our faith staggers at the virgin birth, what, is going, what are we going to make of the feeding of the 5,000, of Jesus stealing the raging waters, of raising Lazarus from the dead, the resurrection of Christ himself from the dead? The virgin birth is God's gracious declaration at the very onset of the gospel. That salvation is my work. It's my work. That's what one author wrote. The, the divinity of Christ is beautiful because it shows us it's good news to you that salvation belongs to the Lord and not to fickle men. We don't follow a God who is dead. There are a lot of man-made religions out there. And you know what happened to all of those leaders? They're dead and they're in a tomb right now. I, 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 I can't follow that. Our faith says our God is alive. He's conquered the grave. He's victorious. He is God. And you can rest in him to do his saving work for you. And every time... We celebrate Advent. That is what we're proclaiming. I only got two points. And the second point is the humility of Christ is beautiful because it shows us why and how Christ would save us. If you fast forward nine months from Luke chapter one, you get to Luke chapter two. It says that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So something happens, right? This is a histor historical figure right here, by the way. So when you see Caesar Augustus, you can go check Wikipedia. He is the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was an emperor uh, of the Roman Empire. So think about that. Think about the reality that, that Luke, who's a doctor, is giving us these nuggets, these details that, hey, by the way, if you want to go check your history books, when this happened, 
It happened when Caesar, Augustus, was the emperor of Rome. And there was also a, a registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. He's giving us these things so that we can date this supernatural event around real things that happened in real history. And what he says is there was a census. You know what censuses are. It's when you have to tell people how many kids you got and how much money you make and how much high school degree, I mean, high school diploma and college you got. It's, 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 a, it's for a reference point for a nation. And so what we see happens here is that this guy randomly calls a census and he says, hey, anybody in the known world, go back to your homeland and be counted, right? And somehow, as they're going back, he says, look at verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, where the angel Gabriel had come to tell Mary that she would conceive, and they have to go home. And she's nine months pregnant, so he's not going to leave her there alone. He says, baby, all right, come on, roll with me. We got to go be counted. And so they go up to Bethlehem because that's where he was from to be registered with Mary and his betrothed, who was also with child. And look at what it says in verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So, so right there, you're starting to see, wait a minute, this looks random, but this isn't random. It looks like this guy, this emperor, has randomly called a census. It looks like she randomly happens to go to Bethlehem, and she randomly, it's time for her to give birth. But when you go read Micah chapter 5, which was written 750 years before this, listen to what Micah chapter 5 says. But you, Bethlehem, who were too little to be strong among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. She who is in labor will give birth. Come on, right? What this means is that this isn't arbitrary. That God is orchestrating all of this. That the coming of the angel to tell Mary she's going to conceive the, the immaculate conception in her womb, it's by the work of God. This census that this man calls, it's by the work of God. And when she goes there and has a baby in Bethlehem, it too is by the work of God so that God's word might be true. 750 years ago, he promised that a virgin will conceive and he promised that they will have a child in Bethlehem. And here's the surprise of the text. When you look at Luke 1, two times, you don't have to turn back there, but look at verse 32. When the angel comes to Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And he will be uh, the child will be born and he will be called holy, the son of God. Now, bring that into Luke chapter two. He's conceived by the power of the most high. He will be called the son of the most high. Then surely when he is born. He's going to get royal, most high treatment. Surely we're rolling out the red carpet. If you've seen coming to America when, when his parents kind of come into America, man, and they are wearing like lion capes and everywhere they go, it's like rose petals. I mean, it, it, it is, I'm not endorsing the movie. I'm just telling you, right? 
when royalty kind of shows up, you know it's royalty. I mean, they make their presence known. He walks everywhere, and these ladies are just throwing petals everywhere his feet walk, right? You would think that there's going to be some type of fanfare, some type of rolling out of the carpet. And then you read where the Son of the Most High is born. It says that there was no room for them in the end. And so he was born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he was laid there. Is that where you think God Almighty ought to spend his first night on the earth in a manger? And animals eat out of a feeding trough. It's humility. There's beauty here. There's beauty here with his humility. And of course, Jesus isn't choosing where he's born, right? He's a baby, right? So it's not like he is actively telling Mary where to place me, but who's, who, who is orchestrating all the events behind this? The father. And so the first night of his own son's life, son of the most high God, where does the, because the father could have made someone have a room. If you can make a man call a census, if you can overcome a virgin and make a virgin have a baby, if you can do all of that, it, it is not out of the reach of the father to give his son a rightful place to lay his head. It is a choice and prerogative of the father to put my son out there. There's beauty there. He could have left one room available. He could have raised up a family member from the family who would make room for the child. But the father says, no, we will not do it. Now, why? Why is this beautiful? What is coming out of this text that screams beauty? His humility shows us how God would save you. Look, if someone is drowning, there's three ways to save them, right? So if you're drowning and we're in a swimming pool and you're like right here, all I have to do is kind of reach in and pull you back. Or if you're a little bit farther, I can kind of lay in, I mean, lay on the side and reach out to you and pull you in. That's one way, but you got to be pretty close. The second way to save someone who is drowning is to take a flotation device that's attached to a string or a rope and you throw it out there. And now that assumes that that person can see and can bob and can, can grab it. And when they grab it, you pull them in from the dryness of the land and you pull them in. So they're cooperating. There's the third way to save a drowning victim. When they're beyond the reach of throwing them anything, when they're beneath the surface and can't reach up and grab a thing, you on, the only way to save them is to jump in. You got to jump in and go get them. And that cold water that threatens their life, you're going to get cold. And the current that they're, that's taking them under, you're going to feel the weight of the current. Now, here's the question. Which way is more intimate? Which way of saving is more personal? Which way of saving better pictures the lostness, that, the, the, the place where we are? Which way? Do we actually think that we're drowning in wrath and all we have to do is accept something that's offered to us and reach out and grab it? it does, does that biblically articulate where we are with the righteous and holy God? No, it doesn't. 
Or, uh, did, did God choose to save us just by throwing us a raft and, hey, just grab it, just grab it? No, that doesn't articulate the condition that we're in. What biblically articulates the condition that we're in is that God is righteous and God is holy. And we're drowning, right? With weights on our feet, there is no way to get up. And the only way God has ordained to save us is if God himself would jump in himself and subject himself to everything you're enduring right here on this earth. He says, I will come from the throne of heaven and I will jump in. I will not throw you a raft. I will not throw you a lifeboat. I myself will be the vessel to save you. Which one is more intimate? When your Savior jumps in and brings you against his chest. When he's the one swimming, holding you, bringing you to safety, which one is more intimate? Now you start to see why God would send Jesus in the form of a man. My people are on the earth. You go to the earth and get them, son. My people have committed sins. You go to the earth and you obey, son. My people are pushed to the outside. There's no room for the poor. You go and be poor. My people get tired. You go get tired. My people get thirsty. You go get thirsty. My people are restricted to laws of gravity and need food. You yourself go and endure every single thing that they endure yet without sin. This humility right here in this opening section of Luke chapter two, it starts to reverberate the way in which God will save you. It's going to be an intimate saving. A saving where he comes to your rescue, comes to our earth and experiences everything you do without sin. This right here in Luke 2, it, it shows that. But his humility here also shows us why we need saving. You see, it's, it's proper whenever we're reading scripture to ask ourselves first, what is this revealing about God? And what is it revealing about his glory, his character, his attributes, his nature, his person? What is it revealing to us about the son? What is it revealing to us about the spirit? But the, you, you always have to push there. Well, what is it saying about me? What is it saying about the human heart, the human condition? And here is the thing. There's a beautiful song that I love, and I love when we sing it around Easter. And it says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there. I was there. Our temptation is to read the people who were mocking and scoffing Jesus and say, oh, my God, y'all are cruel. But the song reminds us that given our chance, given our lot, we would be right there doing the exact same thing. And the case that I want to make to you today is the correct way to read this passage is not to say, how dare they not give Jesus somewhere to live? How dare the innkeeper not open the room? How dare Joseph's family not honor the words of the prophets and, and make a place for the Messiah? If you want to read the Bible correctly, you're them. And I'm them. And so in the way that they were unimpressed by beauty, God had, he had promised this from ages of old that I will come and rescue you. I will send my Messiah. It's in the word. It's in Isaiah. It's in Micah. I will, a, a virgin will conceive and, they, and he will be born in Bethlehem. If you were any devout Jew, you would have known all of that. And they were not moved 
by beauty. They were so judging the book by the cover that they could not see that beauty is right there in front of you. And so this putting Jesus out in Luke chapter 2 and not making room for him in Luke chapter 2, it's going to grow into a more intense hostility that will put him on a cross later. Away with you, Jesus. Get out of here. God is foreshadowing why we need to be saved by the way people behaved when their very Savior came. They did what we do. When you see beauty, you see this three-year-old, do this 13-year-old do this picture, and you want to evaluate it by all the rules of art and grammar, and there's a story behind it. We do the same thing with Jesus. We think the Messiah is going to be this or this or this, but there's a story behind it, and we're so putting our narrative onto his story that we miss beauty. And God says, you've got to know the story. You've got to know the story. And the most beautiful thing would happen to this child. The one who lived a beautiful life was rewarded with sheer ugliness at the end of it. They didn't just put him out in the elements. We opened his flesh and we spit upon him and we mocked him and we put crowns of thorn on him and we lashed him and we divided his clothing and we pierced his side and we hung him on the cross. Why would God allow a righteous and beautiful son who is holy, the son of the most high, who is holy? Why would he reward him with sheer ugliness at the end of his life? I was reading. R.C. Sproul, who went to be with the Lord this week, I was reading his book, Holiness, towards the end of the week. And I think it's chapter two or chapter three. And I just never thought about it. He says, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is love, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. But what the Bible does say is God is holy, holy, holy. So somehow, in the way that God would save you, he has to preserve the integrity of his own name. He is loving, and he will come and save you. And he is merciful. He will blot out your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. But he is holy, holy, holy. And he will punish sin. And what you see in Jesus is this beautiful keeping intact of all of God's character in Jesus. We are beautiful in Jesus. We are righteous in Jesus. We are declared innocent in the sight of God. But also in Jesus, all of our guilt and sin and iniquity and lack of seeing beauty is also put upon this same child. And therefore, at the cross, right, beauty and ugliness, they kiss and they wear together. And God's perfect character is maintained. You see, 
You look at the cross and all you see is beating and lashing. You see ugliness. But with the eyes of faith, you also see beauty. That is how we're saved. We have to know the story. What do we do with this? Three things. I think the first thing this passage calls us to do is to believe Jesus is not just a man who did good things. He is God who became man without ceasing to be God. I know it's a mystery. Believe and rest. The second thing is see and confess. When they were putting him out and not making room, that is what we do every time we sin. That is our default posture outside of the saving grace of God. Were you there when they crucified your Lord? You were there. And the last thing to do is to rest. Your Savior knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to all of the things that you feel his salvation is personal. And he says, come to me. Love what Isaiah says. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. No beauty or majesty pierced for our transgressions, beauty and majesty. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I do pray that for those of us who don't know you, I do pray that today might be a day of salvation. For those of us who have found you boring and have this season has found us restless and busy and tired and bitter, might you give us joy might we see the entire story? Would you do this for your glory and honor? For Jesus' sake, amen.